Hello and welcome to another edition of the Hybrid Intelligence Podcast. I'm Lee Sankey. Now we're recording this on the 22nd of April 2021 and today is Earth Day. So it's fitting that the main theme of today's podcast is sustainable digital or green IT. As technologists, consumers and business leaders were often disconnected from the environmental realities of digital technology, uh, IT infrastructure, or it's not something that's even top of mind. For instance, the, the language of technology frequently creates an abstraction gap. For example, we talk about the cloud, but of course it's a large physical building packed with servers consuming enormous amounts of energy. Now, someone who's been thinking a lot about this subject is Charlotte Walsh, the co-founder of Digital Detox, a digital product agency based in Brixton, South London. And I'm delighted to say that Charlotte joins me today to discuss this and no doubt other things too. Welcome to the show, Charlotte. Thanks, Lee. Now, you and I first met when we were working at Barclays together around... 2012. So do you want to explain for the listeners a little little bit about your background and um, how you came to found Digital Detox? Yeah, cool. Uh, Well, nice to be here. Thanks, Lee. Yes. So, well, yeah, it was 2012, um, but I've actually been in digital for about 22 years um, since arriving in the UK, uh, originally from New Zealand. Started off life um, in a science, did a science degree, actually, double majored in food science and human nutrition, completely different from what I'm doing today. But I did a postgraduate diploma in dietetics uh, and then actually spent my first initial career running hospital kitchens, which involved staffing, budgeting, all that sort of stuff. I had enough of being in hospitals and and kitchens and decided to to move out. And and my logical step was into pharmaceutical sales. Um, I worked for Eli Lilly for a couple of years. Um, and then moved into consumer durables and sales and marketing. That was um, importing and dis- distributing Iowa stereos. And, uh, and again, just learning about different industries. But at that point, and I think uh, just shortly after working with them for a, a year or two, I moved into uh, Butterworths and legal publishing and sales and marketing of, um, of legal text. And actually, that was at the point Butterworths were moving into digital. Right. So they were the UX yeah, UI yeah, thing yeah, starts it started become, there. Right. And that was all about taking these tomes of legal texts and volumes and volumes of legal texts and putting them onto CD-ROM. So that was the first step. And that was back in about 1997. Mm-hmm. And I started actually, because I'd moved into sales and marketing, I decided to do an MBA. So, you know, kept moving from sciences, felt like I wanted to have a bit more business knowledge and expertise. So I did an MBA. And there was an opportunity to do an exchange program to SDA Bocconi in Milan. So we packed up our house, we sold our house, put all our stuff into storage and headed on over to Milan. Um, spent about nine months in Milan and then um, came to the UK after that. And a mate of mine, met a, a, a mate of mine in the pub. She was working at Debenhams in the e-commerce department. And she said, I think I can get you a, um, a job um, in, the, in my department. And I had a two-week contract and uh it got extended in three months and i was there for a couple of years and that was my first step into e-commerce at that point or when you took had that conversation about moving into e-commerce were you thinking about design and user experience no not at all i kind of landed into into it it. right yeah and i um at that time debenhams.com it was 1998 1999 and they were redesigning debenhams.com and i kind of I actually used my, my MBA knowledge and expertise of a methodology. 
and probably my science background of structure to create, uh, you know, to, to go through a discovery, to um, put together hypotheses, to um, research a research-led approach, which was quite different. You know, the, the team there at the time was marketing-led and they weren't really focused on that sort of methodology. Jason Bates, who's the founder of, of um, uh, Monzo, I was going to say Mondo because that's, he's, but he told me exactly the same thing that he, he has a science background, uh, mm. right, you know, as opposed to a, you know, a classic product development background. And he talks all about having a research-based methodology yeah, yeah. and using um, hypothesis. Exactly, but it was also exactly new, you know, um, you know, there weren't many degrees or courses at that time back in 1998. You're making the rules, um, yeah. Yeah. So we're making up the rules. Um, so yeah, that's how I started, um, and I've been in the industry ever since. Worked for you know in, in e-commerce with Marks and Spencers and Debenhams, in banking um, with Barclays where we met. But before that, I was working with Lloyd's. I met uh, Donovan and Digital Detox when I was working in government. I was there for three years, just at the just the precursor to Gov.uk, Centrica and British Gas. So sort of, um, you know, larger enterprise organizations. And I was, I was working um, within the organization, setting up internal teams and you know, focusing more on experience design. Initially, I was, of course, called an information architect because back oh, in yeah, the day, yeah. that's what it back was. In the day. Yeah. Back in the day, it was all about information. And then uh, there came a point when it was about functionality and being able to do things. Utility. And that's when that term mm. of experience architecture came in, really, away from information architecture. Yeah, I guess um, that was accelerated even more by mobile because then that utility and that functionality that you talk about was all about making it accessible on smaller screens, but also because you could do things anywhere rather than just on a desktop. It yeah. kind of accelerated the importance of interfaces being intuitive and so on. Yeah. So probably for my la my later um, part of the, my career has been very much about product strategy, running running digital teams. And of course, it's always changing. You know, that's what I love about it. Right. Every project is different. You know, it's like a game of golf. You know, it's the same game, but you, you, you know, you have to use a different, different iron or you know, have to do different things. And that's what I, I really enjoy about it. There's different users and different audience needs, different needs of the business, different challenges. And technology is always changing. So it, it's always fresh and new. Yeah, it's a very vibrant space yeah. to, to work mm. in. Mm. So climate change sustainability are obviously top of the agenda for political and business leaders we've obviously got the climate summit coming up today's earth day as we talked about and obviously consumers as consumers we're becoming more and more conscious about um sustainability and and, and climate change but typically when when we think about climate change we think about you know cars and air travel or deforestation fossil fuels things like that. we don't necessarily think about IT or digital. Now, yeah. I've noticed you starting to, to blog and put posts about this subject a couple of years ago. And from our sort of background discussions, this area is a key part of, of digital detox. So, mm. you know, why, why, why do you think that the kind of technological impacts of digital and so on are not really are on people's radars? And how big are they? Yeah, um... You're right. It's it's not so well known, and whenever I you know um, mention a few interesting statistics, people are pretty surprised. So, like the aviation the aviation industry that you mentioned, that consumes two percent of the world's uh, human induced CO two emissions, nine hundred and fifteen million tons from uh, produced from flights in twenty nineteen, 
a bit less, of course, in 2020 with COVID yeah. and people not flying. But digital is the same. The internet's um, CO2 emissions equals the aviation industries and probably exceeded it in 2020. Right. So, you know, that it's a, a little known fact that, um, you know, internet CO2 is the same as aviation industries. Now, when you turn on your laptop or you open up your mobile phone, you're not seeing smoke and pollution coming out of holes that you might see coming out of a car. But, you know, it is happening somewhere. Um, and the question is, can we as designers and developers and, and, and DevOps engineers be doing more for the environment? And, and the answer is we can. You know, it's great that we're still we're moving to digital. Digital isn't going away. And of course, moving to digital can be um, very uh, effective in reducing carbon emissions, but we can still do more for the environment and we can still make digital as efficient as possible. So, you know, another interesting thing is um, searches. I mean, we're, how many searches, how many Google searches or, you know, others you know, are we performing 30, every 40, day? 50 a day, I imagine. Exactly. Yeah. So there's an interesting, um, interesting stats. 63,000 Google searches happen every second around the world. And at uh, each search is roughly about 0.2 grams of carbon. So that means there's a thousand tons of, of CO2 being produced just from Google searches each day. And we need uh, about 500,000 acres of mature forest to absorb that amount each year. Wow. Yeah. And, and that's because of all the server calls that goes out yeah. when you do a search, all, all the pings and responses yeah. to bring it back can this be, information. It can be up to seven grams of carbon for a search. And things right. about emails, you know, the amount of emails that we're sending, especially, um, you know, with, uh, in, in organizations where we're, you know, sending attachments to a whole lot of you know, people, uh, it can be up to 50 grams for a, a heavy attachment. And if you're and, and replying all um, and, you know, things like that, it, it's quite, quite incredible. Um, I think Ovo Energy noted that if um, every Brit, so 60 million of us, sent one less thank you email a day, it would save 16,000 tonnes of carbon. And that's the equivalent of 81,000 flights from London to Madrid. <laughs> yeah, so people so, are just not used to the kind of digital cost of these things. So it, yeah, it's, it's pretty hidden. I guess. It's pretty hidden. Need to. The yeah. one that I, I've been really staggered to find more about um, recently, it, it, you know, is blockchain and Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. It consumes a staggering amount of energy and it's still really a kind of fringe activity. So just on Bitcoin at the moment, annually, for, according to Cambridge University, they have a, an alternative finance uh, unit up there and they have a calculator where you can track Bitcoin usage using a various model. I'll put it in the podcast notes so people can click on the link mm -hmm. and find out of it. But the Bitcoin network at the moment consumes 113 terawatt hours annually, which is more than the Netherlands. Yeah. Just to put that in, into perspective, which is 110 a te a terawatt hours. And here's the interesting thing is obviously Bitcoin blockchain, especially blockchain, ha has phenomenal potential, as we've seen with, you know, NFTs and techniques and principles that will power a new economy and unlock amazing new business models. It, it, it's really exciting. But there is, it's not fat free. There's a, there's no, a cost. And I think, I think um, Bitcoin is, is probably one of the dirtier ones. And there's certainly other blockchain protocols, which I 
pretty sure are, are, are better than that and certainly working on it. And I know it's a, a problem within, the, within that sector and that's something that a lot of companies are trying to, trying to work towards. But Bitcoin itself, I think, is, is probably one of the worst ones. And that's where it's like, you know, there's proof of work, proof of state. You know, these are d- different types of um, protocols that have got different, different weights of, of CO2, I'd say. Yes. But I think, but not only blockchain, it's also machine learning. You know, we're all heading into AI, machine learning. And that's another area which is really energy intensive. Data centers, like, you know, the amount of data that's being collected. Uh, Data centers at the moment also consume 2% of the world's electricity. Um, And by 2030, that's expected to be 8%. Yeah, this huge explosion. Apparently, we're only using 6% of the data that we ever collect. Right. So, so we're, 96%, we're hoarders. We're hoarders. 96%. It's sitting in a vast cyber landfill that's just going to keep on growing. Yes. Yeah. I guess the same could be said for all all the content that, that's produced each day. All yeah. the videos are uploaded. Yeah. It is the equivalent of digital landfill. Yeah, it is. What I do find interesting, just coming back to a, a blockchain, and just I mentioned at the top about the, the language that we use in technology is often sort of hides the reality, like the cloud. It, to me, it's super interesting that the term used for blockchain transactions is gas. Mm. And uh, and so that's an almost old world carbon metaphor, which in a way might be quite useful for people to sort of have front and center that actually there is a cost, like a, a bit of environmental cost yeah. with all of these things. I think it's super interesting, the choice of language is that sort of For direct sure. fossil fossil fuel yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Co- a com- you know comparison obviously you've been thinking about this a lot how, how does it impact your work at a digital detox do you sort of bake it into your philosophy is it is it you know does it affect your work and your yeah your we approach? do and it um it affects the decisions of which clients and which projects to work on our team is is pretty passionate about it um, so we have three pillars in our company. We have uh, technology, people, and planet. So obviously we're a technology agency. We design and build applications, websites. We're a people-first company. Um, we really care about the team because if we've got a, a great team and everyone's happy, then you know our clients are going to be happy. Yeah. And planet, you know, we really care about um, building applications that are making a difference to people on the planet and that they are as environmentally friendly as possible. So that's the, the three things that we kind of um, live by, the, you know, the, the, the using latest technologies, making sure that we're building things that are solving problems facing people on the planet. So when you're thinking about the clients that, that, that you work with, I, I, I guess historically, you know, all agencies, in whether they're marketing or, or product, brand, They've historically always had some kind of conflicts. You know, do you work with the tobacco industry? Do you work with certain industry, gambling industries and so on? From, from what you're saying, I guess environmental impact is becoming more, more important. I guess these, these conversations are becoming more and more real within. For sure. Uh, within agencies. So Which is great. Isn't, yourselves... that, isn't that great? You know. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah. A, a, absolutely. Do you, but do, do you guys have those does that lead to some sort of heated debates in uh, in in your? It does. Your I, well, sometimes? I think it's you know it's only when there's. Um, I think if there was you know there are certain we do have a blacklist of industries really I wouldn't say clients um, because 
sometimes a client or a company in a particular industry is trying to become more sustainable or, or do do right. um, you know to improve. Um, so we're all we would always have an open mind about um, working with the company. The team want to work on projects that are making a difference as well. You know, they get a real buzz out of knowing that this is, um, you know, doing something beneficial. Um, so, you know, we find that that actually is a way for us to be attracting the right sort of talent, the right um, people for our team. And several people have been knocking on our door because they've, you know, they've been seeing the, um, the blog posts and, uh, you know, the, our, our steer and our commitment to the environment and, um, and they're keen to work with us. So, you know, it's beneficial in that regard. You know, from an organization point of view, I think it's beneficial for organizations to be um, thinking uh, about the environment with everything that they're doing because it's, uh, you know, customers also might be choosing with their feet as well. Same with investors. Yeah. I mean, we've, at Door, we've a few times, you do end up with having a sense of conflict when it comes to the environment especially when something physical is being produced or something that uses plastic is being produced or something is very energy intensive and it, sometimes you can find even if you push for something which has more of a you know a circular approach yeah. to it or can be recycled quite often still at the end of the day money talks you know something has to be built or made or shipped at a certain price point otherwise mm. it, it doesn't work and I wonder whether ultimately in certain scenarios it's down to legislation like the government is going to have to, like the EU is saying, oh, certain goods have to be repairable, you know, yes. so on and so forth in a small way like we've seen with plastic bags. So. Yeah, I mean, who knows, you know, maybe one day, um, you know, your the, the digital carbon footprint of your website might actually affect your Google ranking. Who knows? Yeah, super interesting. Yeah, exactly. How, how do you, when money is such a powerful force, yeah. how do you get around? Especially when, let's say if you take us in the UK, so much of the effects of globalization or consumption, manufacturing and energy, because it happens somewhere else, right? We don't, we don't see the rainforests being cut down. We don't see the you know, the factory fumes because they're over in China, so on and so forth. So when we're buying things or going about our daily lives, again, we're disconnected from, you yeah, know, the, Amazon. The, the Look at realities. Amazon, how easy it is to click a button and the next, you know, late, you know, first thing the next morning, your parcels yeah, arrived. There's, <laughs> yeah. a, there's a big environmental cost to that. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. So mm -hmm. in terms of digital uh, application software, dig digital products, what are some of the things we can do as designers and developers when we're talking to, yeah. to clients or thinking about products? Yeah. Um, so first of all, the key thing to say is that digital isn't going away. What we have to do is build smarter um, and be thinking about these things when we're designing and developing. So what's interesting is to think about where energy is used when you're viewing an internet page. So 30% of, of the energy is used in the data centers when you are um, preparing and storing the data. So we can make some changes there. 30% is used in the networks when you're sending and retrieving the data. And so we can make improvements there. And 40% is at the devices when you are viewing the data or viewing the information that's being presented. So we can make changes and improvements there. So let's start there with um, looking at, at the device. The average page is about two megabytes in page weight. 
what can we do to, to reduce that page weight? That's what we're always thinking about. A couple of the biggest culprits um, are videos and images. They, uh, you know, uh, they can be quite hefty at times. And we can do things to reduce down um, that page weight. Is that a real challenge as we move to higher and higher resolution screens, 4K? These sure. progressions are more and more yeah. data intensive. But there are, but then, then you know, there are, well, let's say with video, let's just talk about video and then we'll talk about images. Video can use, you know, you can use much smaller videos. Do you have to use such a, a long one? You can choose the most efficient file format. Often the audio uh, is, uh, the audio file is streamed in the background and it's just being hidden. So again, it's adding right. to the network traffic. But instead, you could actually just start streaming the audio when somebody interacts with it. Images, you know, you can, you can compress images using um, WebP, for example, as a much more efficient file format. You can take something that could be a megabyte in uh, file size and bring it down to less than 100 kilobytes, really with little discernible difference. Black and white images much more efficient than color. You know, you can use CSS instead of um, images for faded backgrounds or repeating patterns, tiny compared to an actual image. And things like, uh, in terms of data um, network Transfer. sending, mm. um, lazy loading. It's just as images are coming down, rather than loading the whole page, just you know, as soon as somebody starts to scroll, then you're starting to bring the, um, the images in. Uh, because if somebody isn't scrolling, there's no need to actually show the images below the fold. So there's lots of little things that you can do. Um, faking interactive services. You might be a little chatbot sitting in the corner of your screen and it might be open, but what if you only opened it and started the, the network traffic when somebody touches it and interacts with it? And I guess what you're saying is these small, small things add up cumulatively when we think about all the websites, all the emails, all the, it's, it's a classic case of, small small things making a big adding up to something really significant it's, it's often something that designers aren't thinking about and are leaving it up to developers to make the call but designers should also be thinking about about um how how they they want their product to work not just from an, ex, an experience point of view but also a back-end point of view to make it as efficient as possible so i think it's a, definitely a conversation between the designer and the developer and the developer is often, um, you know, let's not leave it all up to the developers to work these things out. It's, um, you know, it's about communication within the team. Um, and, and then in terms of uh, the data centers, you know, it's about using fewer servers. It's about powering servers more efficiently. Um, it's about uh, using greener energy sources as well right. that are powering renewables, those servers. Insisting yeah. on renewables, yeah. And moving uh, away from on-premise into the cloud does make a big impact. Because, you know, we can be um, using well, the, the larger data centers are generally more energy efficient and they've got, you know, optimized cooling systems and, you know, optimized workload. You know, they can sort of move things around. So it's usually far more energy efficient if you're moving to the cloud, but there can still be a lot of wastage going on there. Um, because it's, it's so easy, isn't it, to light so up a easy. server, right? Yeah. You can just click a button and you can... You can yeah. uh, fire up a light up yeah. another server. I guess sure. I I wonder how many dedicated servers there are out there that are not really doing much. Well, you can easily check on that too. So you can check for zombie server instances. These are just servers that are running that have got no external communications. So you can just do a check and, and you know, look for them and turn them off. Even developer instances, you know, people are only developers are generally working Monday to Friday. But these developer instances are running, you know, 24-7. 24-7, right. 
So, you know, turn them off when, you know, on, on the weekends or out of hours. Yeah, there's, there's a lot that we can be doing. But a key thing is really about culture and awareness and constant monitoring and adjusting. Look for servers that are underutilized and right-size them. So when you say culture, Charlotte, do you, do you mean the culture of the IT and the tech yeah. part of the, of the business? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's about instilling processes and procedures to constantly monitor and adjust and to be thinking about it and seeing where they can be making some savings. I think the key thing here is that not only organizations are making an environmental impact when they are running things more efficiently, they're making a significant financial saving as well. It's a, it's a double win. Right. Which organization doesn't really want to save a, you know, save a few pounds or dollars right now. We have a, a product called the Green Report. We can help companies uh, look at their digital carbon footprint. And we look at, um, we, we call it the, the four C's, the customer. You know, so how are your customers interacting with your services, with your digital services? Um, we look at the code and, you know, can we make improvements in the code? Uh, we look at the culture of the organization in terms of policies and procedures and uh, willingness or, or leadership and instilling a, a directive from above. Um, and we also look at cloud. We did a three-week usage assessment of cloud with a, a large tech firm who had a quite a mature AWS and Azure infrastructure. Right. And I think they had a budget of about 16 million for their infrastructure. And it was, oh, that was 10 million, sorry. And it had blown over to 16 million US dollars. Okay. And we did a three-week usage assessment and managed to bring that down to way below their budget, down to 6 million. Wow. So, you know, not only are they making a, a significant improvement for the environment, they're also um, making a financial improvement. Saving money, yeah. If you're doing that, let's, let's say I'm a CTO listening to this or a, a commercial director or someone working design, what are some of the specific measures or things that I can do to make it relatable? Because I, I think one of the, the things here is that, yeah, you can understand that if you've got, let's say, I don't know, 20, 25 servers and you, you do an audit and you could say, okay, yeah, actually we only need 15. So we're saving this. How do you then bring the environmental angle in there as well? Because at the top, when you were relating your stats to, okay, it's that many trees or yeah. it's this many flights. Are there maybe online calculators or things that people can, you know, can use or things yes. which, which can make it and the, the reason why I mentioned that is when you talk about culture and you want to get people bought into that or you want to drive behavioral change, how does the, the, the measurement or the relatability of these changes, how do you get people to see the benefits? Yeah. Well, I think the key thing you've mentioned there is like um, measuring. First of all, you've got to create an awareness. So people need to know that there's, a, you know, that there's something they can do or that there's things that they should be, should be doing. But then you also have to measure because you can't really change what you can't measure. So step number one is knowing, knowing where you're at at the moment and knowing what good looks like. So what are your targets? And I think some of the, the key, key large organizations are actually creating targets and working towards them. And it's about communication in the organization. So awareness and communication and making it, I think the companies that are, are doing well are the ones that are, are leading from the top. They're publishing data. Uh, internally, maybe not necessarily externally. A lot of organizations are publishing externally, but publish internally initially. Gamify it, you know, make it uh, related to, uh, you know, incentivize it. Bonuses. 
uh, if there's sign- enough um, savings being made, then you know why not um, you know share it yeah. out to the the people who are, um, are doing the work. Yeah. Absolutely. But there is a a little handy little tool called websitecarbon.com, um, and you can go on there and you can type in a, a web page and it can measure the carbon footprint of that page and show you how many trees or how many um, car journeys, how far the car would take to use that much carbon. That, I think it's about 10,000 people use it. So if, you know, if you've got a, a website with you know, a million people viewing that page, obviously you need to do the maths um, to, to work out the impact. So that's quite a nice one, websitecarbon.com. Nice. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about how companies, CTOs, etc., can be thinking about small changes, big changes, be it to their cloud infrastructure or how they're actually coding things. What are some of the things that we can do as consumers behaviorally that can make a a difference in terms of how we're using digital? You mentioned about email earlier and things like that. Yeah, um, I mean, that's a good one. I mean, how many emails lead you get uh, in your inbox that you just delete um, rather than unsubscribe? A lot. The newsletters, you mean? Yeah, just stuff that comes into your inbox, you know, and that's just something that we can be doing. You know, we can be changing behavior a little bit. Just unsubscribe. Unsubscribe from those emails that you don't get around to reading. There's no point getting them if you don't want them. Think about the emails that you're sending to people and the attachments. Can you send a link instead, you know, rather than a great big heavy attachment? Um, Have a sort out of your files. Do you need to keep all this stuff? And photographs, you know, do you need all those pictures of cats or, you know, no, How just, dare you? Yeah. <laughs> I, I love my cat. <laughs> um, things like downloading instead of streaming. Um, you know, less energy intensive if you download. And, you know, if, you, if you're Googling, hey, you know, do you, what about just bookmarking sites rather than Googling every time to, to find it? Right. If I go to the FT regularly. Type it, it in. Uh, type in the FT.com. As opposed to Google. Bring, yeah. Yeah. having all that energy go out through all, all the servers. For sure. And that's yeah. the tricky thing, really, because it's, it is really changing um, behaviours. Yeah. Um, but we need to be changing behaviours, not only you know, at an individual level and a, and a personal level. We need to be doing those sorts of things we've just been talking about. But then also at a team and a company level, we need to be changing behaviour. And that's the sort of thing that we've been talking about you know, in the DevOps team, looking, you know, having those processes and procedures that mean that they are keeping on top of, of their cloud infrastructure or designers and developers having standards to make sure that they're, you know, they're keeping their page weight down. They're thinking about these things. They're thinking about you know, how, how much data is being sent and retrieved. And when. And when, yeah. I was chatting to a, a large global organization a couple of weeks ago, um, chatting about this topic. And I was, I was obviously chatting about digital and it was related to sort of like Earth Hour and this organization during lockdown, uh, obviously everyone's at home, everyone's been away from these big offices, big you know, high story, uh, multi-story offices, and people haven't been near the, the office printers okay, uh, yeah. printing out all their stuff. And they have managed to not print 12 million pages a month. Wow. A month? A wow. month. Wow. Apparently it's 111,000 Harry Potter books a month. Now, let's think about that. So the paper, so obviously there's the cost of the paper and the, the distribution of the paper to the office. Making it. Yep. The printing, the electricity for all the printers. And then I'm sure there's quite a bit of uh, paper that isn't re- being needed and it's popped into the secure um, you know, waste disposal, which then has to be removed. Traded. The cost 
of that printing from an environmental and a financial sense to that organization is massive. And now they've said, let's keep team. We've now, you know, we've moved to digital. We've been coping for this last year without doing all this printing. Let's not go back. Let's not go backwards when we get back to the office. Yeah, that is an incredible, and that's just one. That's just one company. One company. Pretty staggering. Yeah. Another area where paper use is absolutely prolific, my wife's a lawyer, Mm -hmm. is in the judiciary, like Mm. trial bundles, like the court system is so antiquated and the pandemic has forced them to get into digital documents and holding hearings online. And it'll be interesting to see whether in the same way you're saying this particular mm. company is saying, well, hold on, let's not go back to where we before. If you look at some of these trial bundles, which produce the amount of paper involved mm-hmm is mm-hmm. astronomical and that's where you know digital signatures electronic signatures you know all of that sort of thing you know right. comes into play yes a lot of but certain, there are certain industries which are uh, lagging and need to catch up that's for sure yeah <laughs> lagging's a, 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 a <laughs> nice way of um putting it changing tack you're obviously working in a kind of industry in a sector as an agency where often you're having to compete with offshoring solutions either competitors who will offshore the development of something or where the whole project is is offshore and this is i guess a consideration and something for many agencies who their services at the end of the day involve a building things a lot of agencies don't actually make things but digital detox are at the end of the day making mm. digital products software and, uh, and mobile applications so how has the onshoring, offshoring debate and considerations, have, have you seen that market, all those debates change over the last few years? And, and how has it been affected by the pandemic? Because now, previously, you would say, well, if you offshore it, people aren't together and so on and so forth. But now, you know, mm. companies are inherently often distributed. And how you guys sort of... Yeah. thinking about that working working through that initially when we first started off remote i mean we it was pretty easy for us to move remote we often you know work uh, different locations but we've never as a company entirely been remote we were a little bit worried initially were were people going to stop these large projects digital transformation projects and they haven't i mean understandably because if anything it's become more important to continue the digital transformation agenda and then we were like, okay, what, you know, how are we going to, I mean, normally we'd be flying here and there to be meeting with clients. We've been, um, we've got a, a couple of projects, one at the moment in Switzerland and another one in Norway. And we would have been flying uh, regularly, staying in hotels, being up with our clients. And of course that hasn't ha- been able to happen. And, you know, we've, we've moved into, we do a lot of collaboration at different parts of the, of the project. You know, we'll be doing a lot of collaboration and uh teamwork and then at other times later on that's more heads down and uh, delivery yeah yeah but we we moved into online collaboration boards and in actual fact I think that's been one of the things which we'll definitely keep and normally we'd have a big you know we'd have a, a wall in our office or a wall at our clients offices and we'd be you know using sticky notes and making it a beautiful sort of uh, board that people can come and look around but the problem with that is if you're not there and, you know, if it's at our office or our studio, the client doesn't have access to it all the time. And if it's at the client's studio, 
sometimes we don't have access to it all the right. time. And turning, making this, you know, these collaboration boards and idea boards digital is great because everyone's got access to this stuff wherever they are. And it's there in the long term, you know. Yeah, it the, lives on, right? You don't just peel everything no, down after the workshop. Yeah, so for that reason, I think that's been a real, uh, a real win out of all of this. And just, you know, that we don't need to be doing all that traveling. You know, there's a lot of time that gets used. Not only you might be going for a one-hour meeting across London, but, you know, it takes three hours because you've got to get up there and you've got to get back. I think that has been um, a recalibration, I think, and a better use of time, everyone's time. I think we've all been really productive during lockdown, and um, I think that's been, that's been a, a win. But in terms of are we competing, you know, with, with the offshore offshore model, you know, considering we're kind of all remote now, um, how different is it? I think the difference and the, the, the beauty of working with a UK company with uh, European clients is that we're still, I think it's about the closeness, the closeness of the, the project team, the designers and developers, the closeness that they have uh, with the client and also with customers, the client's customers, because it, it really is, you know, we need to understand and know and everything about the client's business to be effective and communicate closely with them. And we need to be really communicating and checking in and validating with customers, the, the clients, users. Yeah. the clients' yeah. users. And I think that is the key thing that makes a big difference. It's not necessarily about location in terms of where the code is happening. It's more about, if I understand what you're saying, the the connection that you have to the endeavor and the connection that you have to the client's business and the people using the product. I think so. If we have developers who aren't connected to the client and they're just hearing stuff from us, or maybe you know, maybe it's two people that they've got to communicate through, you're going to get a mixed message or a lost message. And that developer isn't going to be as emotionally connected to the, the project as a whole and understand what's going on. So context is a key thing here. And, uh, you know, seeing, you know, when you're doing user testing and you're seeing the actual users, you know, using your product and you're, you know, you're making those enhancements, that's how the, the directness is how you've, um, you can create a better product. If yes. you've got secondhand information, you're not as connected to the product, you're not as connected to the client or the customers, and you're not going to be making sensible choices or sensible decisions. Yes. But I think that's I remember, the key thing. Yeah, I remember when we were at Barclays, there was... I think like in a lot of large corporates, there's this idea of sort of procuring third party research. And, and there's definitely a space for that. And, and there's obviously a lot of great third party research out there, trend forecasting and so on. And there's lots of scenarios where you need a third party, neutral third party to come in and test or look at something in an independent way. Mm. But in my experience, it, it, it was hugely powerful, and it, and it still is when we work with clients, when you close that abstraction gap and you get people who either would normally commission someone to do that user research and not see it for themselves, and suddenly you get them doing the research. And I remember a couple of executives later on after the, the, the design team had, had started to have an impact culturally coming along to these briefing sessions and these, these execs, one in particular, he went out and, and he shot a load of customer videos on his phone and he was playing them back, you know, to stakeholders. And it's not like he's trying to justify this particular user. It's like, it's the customer is telling you 
Yeah, well, design's you know, subjective. You know, design is subjective. Mm. Um, and there's no, you know, if the CEO likes, you know, it one way and the customers don't, and you've got proof that, you know, customers like it a particular way, that's what that's who we're designing for. Yeah. I think another thing, um, Lee, is um, the way we're working now. You know, we, we, we build agile. We, we're, we're really passionate about um, building, you know, core features and functions, learning from it, and then allowing organizations and their clients or customers to start to benefit from the, the core features. And then you build upon it. You know, you grow the product incrementally over time, but you're delivering value as quickly as possible. And I think gone are the days when you, you know, do a three-year program and you lob it over the fence and you, some you know, people go away, a great big you know, army of people go away and build stuff and then return and go, ta-da, here it is. And it's wrong or, you know, the world's moved on and it's not quite, doesn't meet the needs anymore. And I think that's where having um, a far more direct connection with the business and with the business's users is vital. That's how we work. So do you do you have any thoughts on this? Because it, it's come up a few times on the podcast. It's something I've I think about a lot in the way that we work in, at door and just generally in terms of how contemporary business happens. So it seems to me that we've moved to the other extreme. So what you just outlined is yeah, big big project. We need to transform. It takes you know two years, loads of people. By the time it sort of ships, it's it's redundant and and not right. So obviously that's not right. So we've moved towards um, agile and, and and sort of various flavors of that to get that agility and and space and um, test and learn and all all the benefits you get. Mm. Now for me, one of the things that going that way has a lot of benefits, but one of the things that for me that's been lost. I'd be interested to see if you if you see this as well. Is that when you move in sprints or you're moving very fast, there isn't the space for reflection. There isn't space, say, you know, how do you get proper research, you know, into a sprint? And there seems to be this tension. And you'll know this is a, you know, as a designer, you have these different cadences. And it feels to be like, especially with working with clients, still trying to work out this balance between, what should be fast and what should be slow mm. in terms of how, do you know what I mean? How, how, how depth, because there's a, there's a sacrifice with speed and just doing a retro at the end of a sprint is not, is not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about working the work, thinking things through, mulling things over, kicking things around, experimentation. Do you know what I mean? Things which just need that longer cadence for that garden to start yeah. coming into bloom. We solve that by often having an initial design thinking phase um, that we're understanding at a high level, the experience design, how the whole thing hangs together, even further out. So we're looking a little bit further out and then we're sort of saying, okay, we've, we've got this sort of, we, we can understand the, the whole ecosystem. And not only from a design point of view, but we're also thinking this from a technical point of view as well. Mm-hmm. So we go through a discovery, a high level design sort of phase before we get into the deliver, which is the agile sprints but even in the agile sprints we, we usually work design working ahead of uh, of development and often we call it dual track dual track agile so we're we're doing things um you know doing that design thinking but at a more macro uh, sorry micro level from the, the bigger design thinking piece up front you know we've got the high level system we know what true north looks like we know where we're heading you know that's really important to get done first before you go into agile 
Right. And then once you've got that and you're breaking it down into epics or, you know, a prioritized backlog, that's when you start getting into agile. And that's where dual track agile works quite well. Where you've got enough time to do your design thinking at a more micro level within the, 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 um, the feature that you're designing. And yeah. then it feeds into the development. So that's how we handle it. Yeah. Um, and it works well. Yeah, I think it's a super interesting challenge, you know, for fostering that balance between depth and breadth and speed and quality of thinking. And sometimes to me, agile feels a bit blunt or as you say, if you're using dual agile or different techniques, and I think it's great. Uh, It's crucial to be aware of these things which happen at different speeds and what needs you know, time and space and what, what can be. Yeah. Say, I think the, the key thing for sure. I think the key thing is um, knowing your high level system experience design system and your technical system up front before you start getting into agile. That's it, got to be done. Yeah. 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 So finally, I, mm-hmm. I like to ask a guest when we have a bit of time, when I first started this podcast, uh, the theme was all about exploring optimism you know when the pandemic first hit it felt like you know that's what we needed a little a little bit of optimism so if i was to ask you what are you optimistic about or not optimistic about um, i mean um there's a few things i'm not optimistic about well i suppose i am but i'm i'm worried about should i say i've got two teenage boys and the amount of screen time they have worries me and uh, a lot of people say oh digital detox is that all about putting your phone down um, and stepping away. And um, it's not, you know, it's actually about making, allowing, allowing more time for face-to-face interactions and allowing technology to take the pressure off and do things that, you know, we really, you know, we don't really have to. So giving more time for face-to-face interactions, but the amount of screen time that my kids use, I think it, 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 that worries me. But I am optimistic about a few things. And one of them is, um, is the fact that we can be using technology to better people in the planet. And that's really one of our um, key concepts uh, at DD. You know, we exist to make people more productive and happy. You know, and we're here to solve problems facing people in the planet. So the key thing for us is, uh, you know, I, I think we're all really optimistic that we can be using technology for good. Do you, do you think technology is the our main way out of the problems that we face? I don't know if it's the main way. I think it's, it's a way, you know, we can't solve everything with technology and sometimes, um, you know, it's people, it's people and technology, but no, you know, there's, there's some technology has enabled us to connect around the world. That's been fantastic. Um, and to share knowledge and share information. That's awesome. But then on the flip side of that, you've got all this fake news and people not knowing what's real and what's not. How do we solve these things? You know, how can we, um, I think that's, that's really interesting. In, in a way, I think that's the red thread that runs through this episode, Charlotte, is this balancing act or this tension between, like so many inventions, you know, technology has a good side and then it has potentially a, a negative side or a cost. And so if you have the internet, which enables the democratization of, information and is empowering in so many ways but then you have the yeah fake news and the internet is the greatest propaganda machine ever created so there's always this it seems like anything that that we invent has a potential 
upside and downside. And if we're not thinking about the downsides or the, the, the costs and just we're just sort of, you know, blinded or like a moth, just only attracted to the. Yeah, we need to think upside. about consequences, that's for sure. And, mm. I, you know, I'm sure when um, Steve Jobs, you know, created the, the iPhone, I don't know if he realised what he was creating, kind of almost attached, you know, to my son's hands. Um, <laughs> they would go to the bathroom with it, you know, just like leave it alone, just leave it, just leave it on the couch. But they just can't, you know, it's, it's always you know, in their hand. Yeah, that worries me. But I think that's why that's why these kind of conversations are great and why it's it I think it's helpful as designers, strategists, business leaders that we make a conscious effort, I guess, yeah. when we're going into an initiative or working with a new technology that we think about the other side of the coin, the underside, mm. I guess, not mm. not just the the shiny the shiny bit. Yeah, for sure. Probably. But I, I, I am optimistic, Lee. Just, uh, you know, that's what, that's what we've got to do. We've got to do the right thing with technology, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, there's more and more momentum going mm. in that way. Um, mm. That's a great message. On this day, Earth Day, Charlotte, thank you so much for your time and joining sure. me today. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Thanks, Lee. Thanks for the opportunity. Nice to chat. So my thanks to my guest today, Charlotte Walsh, founder of Digital Detox, and to you for listening. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider writing a review or giving it a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also, it'd be good to know who's listening to this podcast. So if you've got any questions or comments or just want to say hello, you can drop me a line at contact at doorglobal.com. So once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, keep well and stay safe.